welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. And you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back in. It's another episode of Let's Hear It. And this week, Eric Brown sits with Jim Canales. Eric, tell us what's about to happen. Uh, So Jim Canales is the president of the Barr Foundation, president and trustee. And he was previously the president of the Irvine Foundation here in San Francisco. And Jim and I have known each other for a really long time. And I I, that that, that may bleed through slightly into the conversation. But Jim is one of the smartest. He is really one of the smartest, best communicating foundation Mm. leaders in the land. And I was so excited to have him on because he is just that smart and he's candid. He's funny. He's a dream. He's a dream (laughs) guest. So, you know, if you were thinking of turning this off and listening to startup or some one of those wonderful Gimlet podcasts or something, don't just keep listening because he's he's a really, really fun guest, fun guest, smart, engaging. And you know what struck me? Eric, um, so number one, I almost felt like I was uh, – I suddenly felt like sports affinity. I'm like, wait a minute. We let Boston take Jim Canales from San Francisco? <laughs> I want to trade him back. I, I, I want to trade him back. But then I, I was thinking and then I won't say too much more. But I'm like, you know what? Jim Canales, it is urgently important that leaders like this succeed. Yeah. This is a unique voice in leadership and as we've commented recently – if I was listening to Jim Canales and people like Jim Canales occupy my airwaves all day, every day, I'd be a better person in the world. There's one more thing that I want to say about Jim, yeah. which is that he went into Boston, which is a highly provincial town, and he is basically the second mayor of Boston. <laughs> he has really become a leader. And yeah. and his form of leadership, using a foundation as a platform to advance ideas that matter, is, I think, an amazing model for other other foundation leaders around the country who are interested in making a difference with and beyond their own institution's philanthropy. His is an absolute model for that. It is a textbook case of how you can do that. It's a treat. Let's listen. We'll talk after. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest is Jim Canales, the president and trustee of the Bar Foundation, but not CEO. Not CEO. That that's is right. correct. So you have something to aspire to. I have a title to aspire to. That's, that is, right. that's, that's accurate. Because upward growth is really important. Critically important. <laughs> and especially for you, Jim. Jim Canales, who has been in philanthropy since uh, the 20th century. <laughs> You're so funny. And yet – you are so young. Anyway, Jim Canales, thank you so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to sit here in this fancy studio. I know, Eric. This is pretty snazzy. Having listened to some of the podcast interviews, uh, <laughs> I think you've been in bars. You've been, it sounds like, on iPhones. I mean, this is something else. Bars, we've been on Mars. But this is kind of fun. So yeah. thanks for coming in. I just don't know where to begin. I guess I will begin, as they do in most good communications, with a story. And the story goes like this. I came to Boston to do a little bit of work for you and you were so generous that you let me stay in your apartment as a guest. Jim, you're you're a meticulous, just pulled together guy. And so I stayed in the apartment and when I was leaving the the room, I figured I should make the bed to make it look nice. And and I have to tell you, it took me 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to make the now bed. that's scary, Eric. I was in such fear that I would have a crease or something out of it, even though I knew that you were going to burn the sheets as soon as I left anyway. But 
it's more a story about my respect for you than it is about my fear about your meticulousness. I think it's a very sad story about how meticulously how meticulousness can be defined. <laughs> think of how much other time I waste in in my life. Okay, thank you so much, Jim. I just wanted. There are so many things actually that I don't know about you and I'm sure that other people don't know about you that we would like to hear. And obviously the point of, of this show is to get to drain the moat and lower the drawbridge around the fortress that is foundation. The opacity. The opacity, yes. We're, we're going to – I don't know. What, we're going to scrape out the opacity from, from the window. But can you talk to me about – we won't go into too much, but can you, you're, you're a San Franciscan, right? I am indeed and it's great to be back in my hometown. And you were born and raised in San Francisco. I was. And where did you live? So I lived in a mix of neighborhoods. I was in the Mission District for part of the time I grew up in Bernal Heights, which has changed profoundly for any people who know San Francisco, and then out in the Sunset District for part of it, too. And you went to – did you go to public school? I went to St. Ignatius, good Catholic school, good, good Catholic Jesuit school. boy. Yes. And then you went to Stanford. I did. What was it like? I mean, was it, was it normal where a lot of your – Classmates going to Stanford or were you special? Oh, please. Hardly special. I mean, it's, you know, when you're walking down the hall and you've got Olympic swimmers and uh, people who have just done tremendous things at the age of 19 and 20. I mean, it's it's a pretty awesome experience in mm-hmm. terms of kind of awestruck, uh, but definitely a life changing experience. I mean, what an incredible opportunity to learn in that setting and to just meet so many tremendous people who've been a critical part of my life for the last few decades. But there weren't probably too many kids from St. Ignatius that made their way to There Stanford. were just a couple of us, actually. Yeah. Just a couple of us. So not very many. You were a first-generation San Franciscan, right? I'm, uh, I'm, my, dad, my dad was born here. Your dad well. was born here. And your mom was – where was she born? My dad – both parents were born here. Oh, OK. Both parents. So I'm second generation. Second generation. And then – do I have this right? You became an ice, a high school English teacher. I did. Out, out of Stanford? I did. Can you, talk, can you talk about that? So, I, I, you know, when I – growing up, I knew that teaching was always something that appealed to me. And I had the opportunity during the summers while I was at Stanford to work for a program called the Summer Bridge Program, which is still in existence. And the program I worked at was based at University High School here in San Francisco. And it was a summer program for rising 7th and 8th graders. And it gave you an opportunity as a college student to literally go in and teach classes. There was some mentorship, but it wasn't as though you were student teaching. You were teaching these classes for six weeks, and it just absolutely enlivened my passion for that kind of work. And so after my undergraduate degree, I got my master's at Stanford, went through what's called the STEP program, the teacher ed program there, and then ultimately ended up teaching for five years, which was truly a highlight of my career. Were you going to be a teacher or did you did you want to use that as a stepping stone to something else? So I thought that I wanted to stay in education. I thought that someday maybe running a school would be of interest to me. Uh, and then through serendipity, I ended up at the Irvine Foundation in 1993, five years after uh, graduating from college. And the rest is history. Haven't left philanthropy since. <laughs> And it certainly didn't anticipate in 1993 that I would still be in philanthropy. A barnacle on the hull of philanthropy. You got it. Absolutely. Dug in like a tick. Not very many high school English teachers think to themselves, I want to go into philanthropy, correct? I think that's probably right. But the reality is when you talk to any people who have been privileged enough to be in this field, I think what you discover is so many of them have taken so many different paths. There is just no pathway to it. I mean, I could think about there are some people I know who were child actors and they ended up taking pathways to running communications at multi-billion dollar foundations. So it's pretty impressive. Which is which just goes to show that they'll take anybody. They, they will indeed. They I have, will and indeed. I, can, I can prove it. <laughs> yes, I'm on my fifth comeback. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've aged a little bit <laughs> since some of the movies in the 80s and early 90s. Yes. But that's a topic for another time. Something I was reminded of just yesterday. Uh, yeah, so I'm a I'm a I'm a six time has been I think or four time has been. <laughs> math was never my thing either. I was told there'd be no math. It's, okay, so you go to the Irvine Foundation and you worked your way up, and eventually you were the president or the CEO or the grand high exalted mystic Puba of the Irvine Foundation. And and can you just talk about what you learned over that time? Because you came in on a fairly entry level, do it? I did. Yeah, I, was, I worked as special assistant to the president. Did kind of program associate level work. Worked on a range of special projects. Starting in '93, became a program officer, and then ultimately had some opportunities for some leadership uh, roles at Irvine before I became president. Right. How did you see this field change over that time? So, I mean, the field has changed tremendously, and and I think uh, not just because we're on Let's Hear It and talking about communications, but I think communication. <laughs> is really one of the most fundamental ways that I've seen this field evolve. You know, I I often talk about uh, when I think about communications and philanthropy, I think about communications 1.0 and communications 2.0. And I thought that 
there was a big evolution and this is somewhat remarkable for the sector. There was it was such a big deal when you published an annual report. Uh, the fact that a foundation would share what grants it was making, that it would publish financials. And these were, as you know, published reports that would come out every year and we'd get right. piles of them and the foundation center would collect them in their libraries. And that was viewed as transparency at its sort of greatest manifestation. And happily, the field has evolved from that place to a place where I think today, not only is it, I think, a base expectation that you're sharing that kind of information, and now it's digital as opposed to published for the most part, but there's also a growing recognition, as you've explored on various episodes thus far, of the importance of communications to be mission advancing and to help move the issues that we're trying to move through our philanthropic giving, but acknowledging that there are other tools we can bring to that work. We're definitely going to get to that because I really want to talk about how you've thought about this at Bar. But at Irvine went through some some peaks and valleys, let's just call them. And it feels to me like communications could have either supported or hindered their work. Looking back, are, are there any other things that you would have done at Irvine to use communications to help advance the organization's goals and to prevent against stuff that happens. What you're alluding to is a period of time in the early 2000s where, you know, we were subject to some scrutiny. And I think that there were issues around how responsive we were. You know, it was the first time that we had been faced with a circumstance where we had to think about, quote, crisis communications. And the lessons you learn are the lessons that I think we all know, which is, you know, you want to get out there. You want to say it first. You want to have the issue framed in the ways that you think it ought to be framed as opposed to responding to the ways others have framed it for you. And those are kind of classic uh, lessons that any of us who have gone through these kinds of challenges have come away with. And it's definitely something that has stuck with me. I mean, knock on wood, I haven't faced that uh, in subsequent settings, but I will say that I I think it is really important. I think it ties to the work that we do in philanthropy today and when we think about our program work and this whole issue of, again, how you frame the work, how you talk about your work, and the way in which you help people to understand what you're really trying to achieve as opposed to being back on your heels responding to people who are accusing you of doing certain things or trying to drive policy or trying to influence things inappropriately. I also think it has to do with building trust in the first place. If people trust you, then they'll give you the benefit of the doubt and they'll ask you questions in an honest way and you get to respond to them and you have a conversation. And if they don't know who you are and they're just making things up in their own head, then – you're kind of at their mercy in a sense. Well, and I think that's so true. And that's why this, you know, I was jokingly earlier when you were talking about the drawbridge coming down and I said opacity. I think philanthropy has has historically been a very opaque and very hard to understand and penetrate sector. And as a result, I think that then these kinds of suspicions, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit in terms of how what the current discussion of philanthropy is. And there's a lot in the current discussion of philanthropy that has very deep-seated suspicions about what the true motivations are for some of the philanthropic efforts that are being undertaken. And I think a big part of that is that we don't do a particularly good job of communicating, of sharing our intentions. And that's, you know, that's a good lesson for us. You've always been a good communicator. You're you're nice to say that. You're fun to talk to, but you also – I've also seen you in meetings in which 97 people are saying 241 things and you'll say – what I heard was the following and you somehow managed to take all those things and boil them or do whatever – make some kind of potion and it tastes good when it's done. This is a gift of yours or did you learn how to try and synthesize information and communicate it clearly? There's something that we all could benefit from. Well, some you're kind to say all of that. But first of all, some people might say that, that, that you know, there are times that I synthesize a conversation because I'm pretty clear where I want the conversation to go. And it can be self-serving uh, at times. And I try not that hardly try not to have that be the intent. But, you know, I, I would say you started by talking about my career as a high school English teacher. And I reflect a lot about the skills that you learn when you're in a classroom setting. And I think those skills between the ages of 22 and 26 for me have been really fundamental to what I've been able to do. If you think about it, there's skills around literally being up in front of a group of people trying to command their attention. There are skills around having a clear sense of where you're trying to lead a group of people, but knowing that you can't get them there on your own. They've got to, they've got to be part of that journey. And how do you help to shape that journey for them and engage them along the way? And I think to your point about synthesis, uh, and, and I do think not because you called out that skill, but I often think for those of us in leadership roles, I think that is one of the most fundamental skills. The ability to listen carefully to a discussion, 
to really internalize what is being said and to try to reflect back, not in a way that is trying to drive people to some end that they're not prepared to go, Mm -hmm. but rather that helps people feel motivated about a direction. Because you and I have been in so many different meetings where it's a great discussion, but you walk away and you have no idea what did we take away from this, what the next step is. And this is something actually brought into my work at Irvine and working with my board. Early on, I recognized that for those of us in CEO roles working with boards, oftentimes you leave board meetings and there's a lot of lack of clarity about we had a rich discussion, but what happens next? And one of the things that we started to do is I would try to conclude every board discussion by offering my own synthesis of mm-hmm. what I what I had heard and what I took as the next steps and then checking that with everybody. And then we would refine it and then we would document it at the end of the meeting. And, and literally within a week of every board meeting, we would send a summary of actions that they agreed to, but also here's some of the next steps that we agreed to pursue so that we've got that not for the historical record, although that's important. Important, but more importantly, because these are people who are dropping in once a quarter and you want to be able to make sure they remember the decisions that they made and that you're on some kind of trajectory. Do you do that at home as well? Oh, at home? No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it makes no sense. My husband is uh, 10 steps ahead of me on everything. So believe me. It's a running theme on here that all the good communicators, you know, cobbler kids have no shoes. You, you get home and all that, all those skills go right out the window. Absolutely. Or your spouse says, you're using communications against me. <laughs> so either it's, it's either that or Mr. Communications, you know, why aren't you a better communicator or are you using dark arts? You've done that really well. I've actually learned a lot from you on this on this score, although I don't write the minutes of the meeting before they happen. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I try not to, too. OK. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I heard a rumor. No. <laughs> So you're you're at the Irvine Foundation and turning that place, not turning it around, but really building it. And then you decided to move to Boston, a city you'd never – you'd never lived in any other city. You never right? lived outside of San Francisco other than my five years at Stanford. And, uh, and, and you went to, went to the Bar Foundation, which had been a very low-key institution. Why did you do that? Uh, great question that I get asked uh, a great deal, and you know, funda- Daily, probably fundamentally, it it you know, it's a pretty simple answer, which is it was the opportunity to work with two living donors mm-hmm. who had established this foundation in the late '90s, Barbara and Amos Hostetter, and had decided now, 16 years into the work of that foundation, that they were ready to move it to the next level. And some terrific work had been done at the Bar Foundation, and and frankly, much of what we're doing today really builds on that work. So. This is with all respect to the people who preceded me in the role that I was in. But it was also – it was an inflection point for the institution. Uh, as Barbara, my board chair, often says, you know, she felt that the foundation was in its adolescence and ready to come out of adolescence. And so through a series of conversations, I think the three of us got clear about a set of shared values, a, a, a set of shared aspirations for the Bar Foundation. And it felt like the right fit. And I had loved my time at the Irvine Foundation. But after 11 years as CEO and 20 years in the same institution, it's also important for organizations to go through the natural evolution that a new leader will bring. And they've done that with Don Howard over the last five years. And it's been great to watch how things have evolved. And that's just healthy for institutions like ours. I've always thought that these CEO roles you know, somewhere in that 10 to 12 year mark and not because I landed somewhere in the sweet spot of the 10 to 12 year mark. But it's always felt to me that that seems the right time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, you come from an institution that had term limits for a number of different roles. And there's, there might be something to be said about those kinds of term limits. But definitely in the leadership role, I think it takes a certain amount of time to get things done. But at some point, it's also healthy to then invite new leadership to come in and work with the board and think about the next stage of the organization's work. Well, now that we've got you to Boston, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Jim Canales, president of the Bar Foundation. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. All right, we're back with Jim. So now you've taken the job as president at the Bar Foundation, and you say that the Hostetters had started to change the way they thought about their institution. Was that something that happened before you came in? 
And and can you just talk about what you perceive to be their shift in thinking? I, I don't imagine you would have wanted to run an anonymous foundation. And the foundation had already broken out of anonymity in about the 2010 timeframe. So by the time I arrived in 2014, it had already been public for more than three to four years in its approach, but still a pretty quiet foundation. Right. And I would say that on the communications piece of this, um, and not because I'm sitting across from you, but you alluded to this earlier in the conversation, uh, probably one of the smartest things that I did was to hire a consultant by the name of Eric Brown to come in <laughs> and work with me and Stefan Lamfer, our very talented, at the time, knowledge officer, who I soon promoted to director of communications and who's been a wonderful colleague for these last five years. And Stefan and I, as you know, and we should talk about this a little mm-hmm. bit, worked with you. And I think you helped us to also set our sights to a different level and to help us think about how communications could be mission advancing. And I think that was a critical shift for us. And I think the credibility that you brought to those discussions with our trustees, you were part of those conversations with Barbara and Amos. And that was those conversations that first summer that I was there were truly transformational, both as it related to communications and a growing comfort that we were going to be more public and open in terms of our work. And because it was mission advancing, not out of any sense of ego or PR or self-aggrandizement, but also because it helped to model the way in which we were working through these challenging problems and opportunities together. Well, you you could talk about that too. Eh. Well, okay. First of all, I was not fishing for that and I did not expect you to say that. So everybody just – Jim is a very smart guy, but just disregard the last uh, couple of minutes. But what I really – I really do want to talk about how foundations use communications to advance their missions. We've been having those conversations on this show and – I mean, it's something I've been thinking about for 16 years, and I don't feel like I'm anywhere near cracking the nut. But I would love to know, because you have really become, in a short period of time, a a leader in Boston. I mean, you're like this other mayor of Boston. You're using not just the foundation's you know resources, their money, but you're pushing issues in the city, which is not usually the job of a foundation CEO. And I'd love to know how you've been thinking about that and who you turn to for advice on those sorts of things and really what what is the role of foundation foundations in using their perspective and the various resources that they bring to advance issues? Well, the way I think about it is foundations have a number of luxuries at their disposal. I mean obviously people often think about the resources that we have and those are great. But in the grand scheme of things, the resources that we have are not all that great right. when you look at government budgets and you look at the scope of, of philanthropy certainly across the country. But I do think that one of the roles that foundations can play is to think about the various tools that we have that can advance our mission and One of the tools that we have is we can take a long-term perspective on issues. We're not subject to the ballot box. You alluded to, you know, the mayor. We have a great mayor in Boston, very pleased to have partnered with him on a number of initiatives between Barr and the city. And we're very fortunate to have that quality of leadership. But we can take a long-term perspective. And sometimes people in elected office aren't able to do that, or certainly people who have a bottom line that they have to meet aren't able to do that. We can be perhaps bold and aspirational in a way that's harder, again, for other sectors to be, for some of the pressures that I described earlier. So I think part of what we think about is what is the voice we can bring? What is the contribution we can make to discussions of some of the critical issues that face our community? Education, climate change, uh, the importance of investing in the arts. Those are the three principal areas that we engage in at the Bar Foundation. And I would say that we try to think long and hard about not only where can we make smart grants, where can we invest in really talented leaders, but where are there targeted opportunities where we can weigh in, help to convene people, help to bring our voice to a conversation, help to perhaps at least reframe a discussion that might be happening that needs to be reframed. And you're picking issues on which uh, there are people who have differing opinions. So it's not safe issues in every instance. I mean, certainly some of the development in downtown Boston, you've really the, the Olympics. These are things that you've weighed in on that have had countervailing voices. How do you make those decisions? Is it that the Hostetters are willing to say it's okay if people disagree with us? How do you think about using the foundation voice even when you know that there will be people who disagree with you? So one of the things that we went through when soon after I arrived was a process with just the trustees of the foundation. And at that point, it was just three of us, uh, Barbara and Amos and I. And we talked about clarifying the values of the foundation. And one of the values that we landed on among the six is to embrace risk. Mm -hmm. And I think inherent in embracing risk is – 
being open to critique, is knowing that there are times that people are going to take swipes at you because they disagree with what you're doing. But I think for us, if what we are doing is rooted in some of the other values around adopt a long-term perspective, around investing in leadership, around, again, risk-taking, then we're very comfortable with that. So you alluded to work that we've been doing related to the Boston waterfront. We took on an initiative a number of years ago, now three years ago, to basically say that the Boston waterfront is a treasure. It is an asset. And for those who know the history of Boston, they know that that used to be – the harbor used to be a sewer. Right. And billions of dollars were invested to clean up that harbor and a elevated expressway was depressed and a greenway was created and the city basically went from turning its back to the harbor – to really looking to the harbor. And as a result, there began to be a lot of development along the Boston Harbor, particularly in South Boston, also known as the seaport. And one of the concerns that we had that had nothing to do with development, it had everything to do with how are we ensuring that this terrific resource that we have is accessible to all Bostonians, is accessible to everyone. How are we thinking about parks and open space? How are we thinking about quality design? How do we think about mobility, using the waterfront as a means of moving people around across this harbor? And importantly for us, especially given our climate focus, how do we think about the harbor as a means of protecting the city given inevitable sea level rise and we already right. experienced lots of storm events? So that put us out there and we did make some statements. We talked about how the city often looks at development on a parcel by parcel basis and that there was no overarching vision that was guiding some of these decisions. And that was not a popular statement to have made. It was not an intent to take a swipe at anyone. It was merely an intent to suggest that a city like Boston that aims to be world-class ought to be thinking in these more comprehensive, cohesive ways about the kind of waterfront that it wants for its people today and for future generations. And so you took a stand and you took actual risk. I think risk sometimes is a fetish. We Foundations like, oh, we're, we love risk, but they don't actually do any risky th- things. Do you think foundations in general are too timid? I think foundations can be very timid. And I think it, many others have spoken to this. I know you had a great conversation with Grant Oliphant about this. And Grant, to me, is one of the exemplars of moral leadership, using your voice as a foundation mm-hmm. leader to stay rooted in values and to speak truth to power and to use your voice in really eloquent and powerful ways, again, rooted in the values of what we are about, not only as foundations, but also in the context of a civil society and in the context of the social sector. So for any who want to hear really the most thoughtful articulation of that, go back and listen to Let's Hear It episode two or three with Grant Oliphant because he spoke so articulately to this issue. Another thing that I've spent a lot of time with is sitting in board meetings, the Hewlett Board and and others, understanding how a leadership of the the board leadership, how it shapes an institution and how important it is to communicate well with that. Now, you've been on 117 boards (laughs) and I think you've chaired each and every one of them. So you know a lot about how to work with a board. And you're on the board of the Gardner Museum, right? I am indeed. So who stole the paintings? Is oh, the come on. Question. If I knew that, oh, come I wouldn't on. be sitting here. Just tell us. I, you, no one will know. How, what is the best way to use a board? Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit and say sometimes you don't want too much advice from your board because as a professional staff, you you need their trust. But you can get a lot of different viewpoints in a room And it can make things difficult. So how do you work with a board? Now, you have a small board now. You've been on a million boards. Can you just talk a little bit about boardiness? Yeah, governance is a huge topic and I think one that deserves the kind of time and attention that I know many leaders give to thinking about this question. I love that you used questions like how do you use your board? You know, How do you work with your board? Because oftentimes the dialogue about boards, particularly if you're sitting with a group of CEOs, whether foundation CEOs or not, is often, oh, how do I manage my board? Right. And I often think, you know, let's get out of this, this sense of how do we manage our boards? Let's think about how we engage our boards. And I'm often guided both as the CEO of an institution or the president of an institution, but also as a board member of thinking deeply about how is it that you can create an opportunity for those board members to add value to the work of the institution. And so to go back to my teaching analogy, I frankly often think about structuring board agendas the same way I thought about putting together a lesson plan. Hmm. And that's not intended to be in the way that I have knowledge to transmit or that I have all the wisdom and now I need to impart it to my students. I never felt that way, frankly, about working in the classroom. I felt about bringing out the very best in each of those students. It's the same with board meetings. I think when you think about the structure of a board meeting, what you should 
be thinking about as a CEO is what are the goals of the meeting? What are you trying to get out? What is the value that you want to derive from this experience? And how can you create a sequence of activities, whether it's guest speakers, whether it's small group conversations, whether it's full group discussion, whether it's exposure to work that staff is doing? You know, how do you put that mix and blend of different approaches together to then ultimately achieve the, the aim that you seek to achieve? There are some people who have said that, you know, foundation board meetings can often feel like pageantry, mm-hmm. um, can often feel that it's great show and tell and let's talk about all the great work we do. And I think maybe the board feels good when it walks out that the foundation's adding this kind of value. But I don't know that they as individuals feel like they added very much. And that's, to me, a fundamental question for any board. There's also the question about being candid about what doesn't go well or where you've fallen short or things didn't go according to plan. And I'd be really eager to hear from you about if you have any stories about that or things that you look back and you'd have done differently. Oh, there are a lot of things that I would I, I would have done differently. So if I think about my early time at the Irvine Foundation, I had the great privilege of becoming CEO at the age of 36. And the reality is to move into that kind of role at that age, you know, you end up having a lot of insecurities. And do I really deserve this? Am I the right person for this? And I think for me, where the way that played out uh, is, you alluded to making the bed, um, you know, there is a part of me that is very regimented and diligent and certainly thorough, and that's always been who I am. But I think in that particular role, I, I really leaned more toward perfectionism than I frankly mm-hmm. I should have. And I think one of the lessons that I learned in the first five years of leading the Irvine Foundation is that that drive to perfectionism, to make sure that the board book was flawless, to make sure that our memos were perfect, that our write-ups were absolutely unassailable, that that had other effects for staff that ultimately is not good for the culture of the institution. And ultimately, it's not valuable for the work that we're trying to do. And ultimately, the board's not looking for that level of perfectionism. That was a great lesson for me. I hope it's something that I've learned and internalized and carried into other kind of leadership that I've provided since then. Yeah, well, I think Daniel Silverman still wakes up in the middle of the night screaming. <laughs> Daniel Silverman, I'm sure, was thrilled the day that he finally got rid of me. Hardly. Your former communications director who's kicked upstairs to vice president for strategic services. Indeed. I and I would say that Daniel, um, we're talking a lot about communications, and I'm, I hope he'll listen to this at some point. But Daniel truly taught me much of what I know about communications. That was one of the smartest hires that I ever made at Irvine to bring him into that role. And much of what I have learned about the way to use communications in a foundation mm-hmm. setting really was at Daniel Silverman's feet. So I'm hugely grateful to him. Speaking of learning, who do you turn to for advice? Who are your cronies, your confidants? You know, there are, lo- there, there are lots of people. And I would say that I, I think one of the Rather than giving names, what I would say is I turn to people who I know are going to tell me the truth. I think this is an industry, as you well know, where people don't tell you the truth. They tell you things that they think you want to hear. They're very complimentary, lots of flattery, and and that's all well and good, but it's ultimately not that helpful. And I think for me, what I often do is turn to people that I know are going to bring a critical eye to something and that I know are going to be constructively – give me constructive feedback and tell me what's not working, what could be better. I mean I start with my husband, Jim, who is uh, very good at this and I say that with all love and affection. But truly he's the most honest truth teller that I have around and that's very helpful. But I've also met nonprofit leaders who have played that role, other foundation leaders. Um, I'm fortunate to have opportunities to engage with other foundation CEOs and structured mm-hmm. meetings from time to time. And those become places where people really are able to just be candid, be direct, be honest with one another, bring case studies of something that they're really struggling with in a very open and vulnerable way. Those are the most valuable conversations. Hey, if you want people to tell you the truth and if you want to know who your friends are, become a consultant. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, yeah, no. This is a, a business full of incredibly nice people who actually care. And I've always found it that way. People didn't treat me any differently when I no longer had a Hewlett.org email address. Looking back, I mean, you've had – you're still a very young man, Jim. 52 is not that very young. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Fine. But um, looking back, you've had a long career in philanthropy, the ripe old age of 52. What would you tell a young Jimmy Canales or whatever they call <laughs> Jimmy was right. That's Is exactly right. Yeah. What would you tell a young Jimmy Canales graduating from St. Ignatius about uh, what his life would hold and what lessons he should take to heart as he worked his way into – adulthood and 
the real world. You know, I often, uh, as you can imagine, and I'm sure you do the same, you get lots of requests for people who are interested in philanthropy and want to talk to you about, you know, how do I get into the field? Uh, what, what are the different pathways? And I often focus less on, on, again, what are the jobs that you could have? And I think a lot about who are you going to be working with? Who's going to take an interest in you and develop you and provide you with opportunities? You know, we talked about my early days at Irvine, and the reality is I was so fortunate to work very closely with the president of the foundation at that point in time, Dennis Collins, and I worked with him for 10 years, and I learned so much during that 10-year period. He pushed me. He challenged me. He gave me opportunities that someone at the age of 26 should not have been given, mm-hmm. just in the sense of the kind of responsibility that it uh, implied and granted. I hope that I gave back and added value. But the reality is that mentorship experience was so rich and profound. It happened to be at the Irvine Foundation. It happened to be in the philanthropic sector, but it could have been anywhere else. And I I often am oriented toward that in guiding people to say, where can you find yourself in a setting where someone is really going to take an interest in developing you as a leader, as a professional, and also giving you responsibilities that are far beyond what you should be given? You know, my co-host Kirk and I have been talking about how do we bring in the next generation of communications people because that's our – Because you're so old? (laughs) I'm older than you are, Jim, because we know that it's time. And because I think in this – at this very moment, it is clear that new thinking, different ways of thinking, that the old version, however you want to define it, needs to yield to new thinking and diversity across all forms of the kind of people who are participating in this field. And and we're not – certainly not there yet. But we also, I think, have a responsibility to this next generation, all of us who are are sitting in these jobs who who have information to share. What, What advice do you have for our field? for how to mentor young people, how to bring new thinking in, how to get people into this work that probably as a high school teacher, you might never have thought of. You were you came in through a, a pathway that was unusual, but there is no usual pathway, as you said. What plan should we be making to ensure that this next generation who have new good ideas and can improve our own, who can improve our society, can get us there? Couldn't agree with you more on the observation about um, the importance of building, cultivating, fostering that next generation of leadership and also acknowledging that there's just a different experience set, a different way of looking at things that they bring. I, you know, I feel that I'm fortunate in my age bracket to to try to stay up with the digital world. But the reality is people who are 20 years, 30 years younger than I am approach the digital environment in a very different way and are far more savvy than I am. And there's real power in that. And as we know from looking at some of the – when you look at the way the Obama campaign operated and you look at the digital infrastructure that was in place, you just come to realize how powerful and how important that perspective is as it relates to the kind of change you want to move. But one of the things that I have been really impressed by, and I don't say this again because you've been involved in it, but the communications network, which as you know, started as kind of a very small confederation of communications directors at foundations getting together from time to time, has really evolved and with Sean Gibbons' leadership has evolved even more robustly to embrace a much bigger view of, of not just communications directors at foundations but really all of us who care about using communications to drive social change. And I have found those conferences the last number of years to be incredibly stimulating, energizing, and to see the young people, to see the Mm -hmm. diversity of people in the room. Those are exactly the people that we need to be grooming and helping to move into the kinds of roles that you and I have been in. Well, you have really had a lot of leadership on this, and we really appreciate the communications network. Always appreciated that that you would show up. I mean, you were one of the first President, foundation presidents who would regularly come to these conferences, which sent a signal, I hope, to your colleagues that this was an important way of thinking. Uh, and we appreciated that. That's for sure. And I, I just appreciate what, what you do. You're a great guy and you have done a lot for communications, but you've also done a lot for philanthropy and you're just fun to talk to. Well, likewise, you're very generous and I really appreciate your taking the time and uh, inviting me to be part of this. Well, thank you again, Jim Canales, president of the Barr Foundation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Okay, everybody. Eric with Jim Canales. Wow. What'd you think? Oh, man. Okay, so first of all, I don't know Jim. I've never met him. Uh-huh. You know him from forever. I've, I know him so well that I, it took me 20 minutes to make the bed. <laughs> 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 I 
is a true story. Well, which, by the way, <laughs> I was scared to death. What you hear? Jeez, I'm going to leave a crease in the bed, and he's never going to talk to me again. The, you hear the way he thinks, and just how thoughtful he is, and how well he puts all this together. There's a meticulousness there that totally come, that makes perfect sense yes. to me about that. So, um, I'm also ashamed. <laughs> So I feel shame. Well, I feel shame a lot, but I felt a special shame because he said very nice things about me, and I think he felt like he had the he, he needed to say them. Mm, even I don't <laughs> think so. Well, I was we'll like, I was not. There. I was not fishing for uh, any of that. Stuff. We'll get there. So, so I've got this great idea. It's a genius idea. Uh-oh. I want to launch a podcast so we can listen to people talk to you. Every time you come up with an idea, it's more work for yeah, me. It's Kirk. true. It's true. Well, Tom is, Sawyer of podcasting from Word Go. From word go, Jim starts talking and I'm all in. Like you just want to listen to him talk. And and this is this thing about the urgency of his success. It's the mix. It's the mix of smart, insightful, and authentic humility. Yep. It's not a word I just picked off the shelf because I know I need to say that. Oh, what, it's true. What just happened here? He's th- This is a remarkable human being, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like the Buddha saying, eh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not that great. So um, one of the things I really liked about his whole story, though, and since you were kind of around it, he um, he comes up in the field. He starts out as a special assistant yeah. at the Irvine Foundation. And he was he, a high school teacher. And then a high school teacher. Well, he was a high school teacher that went to work at the Irvine Foundation when he was 20 something years old. Just, he's just in, so he's coming kid. from the mailroom in a way, right? Yeah, basically. And, but, but, and, but, and he alludes he to this all those skills he developed teaching have become so important for him in his work. And you and I have talked about this and joked about this. It's almost like we need to do this little bit in the podcast, which is like, what's the random job that you had that actually helped you? Uh, you it's a fun question, isn't right? it? Uh, because it completely comes through. Now, you know what my random job is, right? What was it? Random I job? taught comedy traffic school. Oh, God. <laughs> of I'm course. You, I spent eight hours on a Saturday with a whole bunch of traffic offenders who really, really, really did not want to be there. <laughs> and oh, and I was supposed to be funny. And my other part is I had to order the pizza. Excellent. And take the money. Well done. Well done. It's terrible. So we had some firsts here in this podcast. And one of them is um, Jim talks about the importance of communications to be mission advancing. Mm-hmm. And I loved that phraseology. And then he actually said there's kind of communications 1.0 and then communications 2.0. And I couldn't fi- – I think that the publishing the annual report was part of communications 1.0, I think. Yeah. But – so I'd be curious, what is your view of that evolution? Because clearly Jim is – he's a clearly a, a communicator from the yes. perch he's in. But he's also watching this evolution take place how would you characterize that evolution? Because I'm like, this is this is so awesome. This is why we're doing this podcast. We're trying to have these conversations. I think communications 2.0 is the communications mindset in which uh, everybody in your institution understands the role of communications to advancing the mission of the organization. Uh, That's communications 2.0. Communications 1.0 was tactics and and it was the transaction. And communications 2.0 is the way of thinking, the way of the beingness, if you will, if, well, around our, our Buddhist theme, the, the beingness of, of communications, which is that everything that you do involves interaction, it involves persuasion, it involves collaboration, all of that stuff. And that is all you know, communications is intrinsic to that, that mindset, making sure that every program officer, every everybody feels that and understands it and asks the important questions about what are we trying to achieve and who is who is it we're trying to persuade then all of a sudden the place starts humming i think so if it's if that's taken place is strategy and communication strategy can you no longer distinguish between the two no. in a way? I don't think Because so. communications isn't the box that you're looking at right. once you get to that point in the, in the chart, so to speak. Yeah. The old, yeah. The old days, they come into the office, they take some report that they funded, they throw it at you and yeah. say, hey, can you get this out? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. it's over. Just <laughs> crawl under the desk like, <laughs> yeah. like, like George Costanza. Well, so – and you talk about Jim's work in Boston, which by the way is a place we're doing tons of work and I, I just – You say it's provincial. I I would say it somewhat differently. I think there's a real community sensibility in Boston that you can activate and get things done. But But it's a province, not a a country. Right. You know, I I meant provincial in that sense, which is that everybody knows each other. That's right. That, That's right. You know, you can't just walk in there 
and be king. Yeah. Except Jim has managed to to come in and really be influential and to help persuade people and to move ideas as uh, as really as an outsider. Well, and you talked about the role of building trust in that process. And I thought that was a really interesting mm-hmm. part of this conversation too because again, the authenticity that Jim is bringing to this is not something he – he's bringing it. In fact, actually I was thinking about his sort of – part of his history is the Jesuit education. Right. And I'm like, oh, great. He's Jesuit trained, of course. Like he's just a you know super smart guy. But what do you think um, – what do you think about the trust element and how does that relate to communications and how does that relate to – the choices foundations need to make because well, I, I I love that whole conversation. Yeah, building trust is different from from being well liked mm. or not be not being disagreed with. And as we talked about, he has advocated certain ways of thinking about the downtown area in Boston that were not universally popular. Yeah, right. And but he knew that. But he also the, the things that he was advocating were based on his own values. And by taking a stand is how you build trust among people w- with whom you need to engage. And sometimes, I mean, in many instances, you can build trust about well, with someone who, with whom you disagree because you are clear about what it is. You believe in yeah. and what you think the solutions are and then you begin to negotiate around those things or through those things so that you can get to some kind of better outcome. And so I do think that you build trust by being honest yeah. and transparent and fair and you can disagree and still be all of those things. But if you – you know, it's the old uh, you know, Aaron Burr versus Alexander. <laughs> Aaron Burr is like tell everybody whatever they wanted to hear or don't yeah. say much so that people don't know where you stand. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Jim Canales is no Aaron Burr. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. He is yeah. an Alexander Hamilton without – I don't want to get into the Ishmael Reed um, <laughs> <laughs> controversy, the Ishmael versus Lin-Manuel controversy. Uh, but – Anyway, you get my point. Well, and you know, this has come up. I feel like a couple of times, but I feel like Jim addresses it very directly. This notion that foundations are repositories of financial resources, and he actually comments on the fact that our financial resources, comparatively, are not that great. Yeah, and we've both have had the experience of of working close to institutions that you would basically feel like you're sitting on top of an infinite repository of financial resources, mm-hmm. and realizing there's not enough money in the world. The proverbial pimple on an elephant's tuchus. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's, that's right. what foundation resources are compared to almost any economy in which those foundations are operating. But so then Jim starts talking about all the other things that foundations can do. And you know, we've had this conversation about all the different skill sets that get involved in doing all this work. And 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 so Jim not only identifies what those things are that foundations can do, but in the process. I feel like actually starts pointing to some of the skill set that has to go along with that because mm-hmm. you really and, and again I know we, we we've said that we're not going to try to like analyze our guests but like the model that Jim is giving us here right, right. is you know I'm going to be clear about the process and approach and our outcomes but I'm also going to bring a wealth of talent I'm right. going to bring a wealth of skill sets to be able to actually advance these issues and I just and especially the work he did with his own trustees to evolve the Bar yes. Foundation and its role yeah that's that's hard work. That's deep work he's done there. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. And let's just remember that the Bar Foundation was anonymous for quite some time, and then it was semi-anonymous. And he and it is now anything but anonymous. Yeah. It is an effective central component to the life in Boston and and beyond because they're working on issues that extend beyond Boston, like climate change. Although they're looking at it from a Boston perspective. So the idea that you can take a foundation and take its checkbook and turn it into something much more than just a checkbook is something that he proves. Mm. And Mm. communications are central to it. Mm. Big and small C communications are central to that. But his own communications mindset is it it it's where that starts i think yeah yeah well and he does say that the smartest thing he ever did was hiring your <laughs> and i'm not gonna let you soft pedal or softball that or like just, just no that is and, and i completely got it because you know it's funny the other thing that jim's really honest about he's got this on authentic um what is it insecurity or like an authentic like I don't know. This all happened. I was, you know, at my first executive level job. I was very early in my career, and 
and just looking to draw on the best support and advice he can get. Right. And, and I just, I, the, the marriage of talents there between Jim's sensibility and how I know you work. I, uh-huh. I was like, of course, that's how that, that, that of course, that's just, it, it, I think that was really wise. I think he, I think he did a really good job and actually in leaning on you. Um, the other two words that we heard on this interview for the first time, and I don't want to go into the depths of the what for this, but I would just be curious to have your observations about the topic. Crisis communications. Oh, uh, yeah. We haven't heard the phrase crisis communications before on this podcast. And uh, and Jim has his own experience with it. And I feel like crisis communications is almost like the Jaws moment. Like it's like you don't know you need that skill set until right. you're in the mouth of the shark kind of a thing. And um, and I'm just kind of curious how that – because you, you had some background in terms of what Jim was wrestling with there when sure. that went to happen. But we haven't talked a lot about crisis communications as part of either on either side of the ledger, foundation or nonprofit, right. and yet it's in the mix. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, this is certainly a topic for another another day for sure. Crisis communications is if once you're in crisis communications, it's too late. It's oh. kind of like earthquake preparedness <laughs> versus earthquake recovery. Yeah. And and I do think that this my short answer is that you need to be preparing for the various things that could happen so that you don't overreact. I think mm. that's often the case. Yeah. But you you really have to be prepared. You have to have your earthquake preparedness kit ready to go and it has to have stuff in it that you can use. And I do think that that's, like I said, a conversation for another day. Yeah. But once you're in the crisis, it's too damn late. There is, it is almost nothing that you can do. Yeah, and you know, it is a field specialization and I have to say that in my experience working with firms that in people that just work in that field, mm-hmm. oh, it's a different deal too. Yep. You know, it's like it's like being the ER doc in the hallway and they're rolling the person in and you're like grabbing whatever you can to resuscitate the heart. It's amazing. So the last thing I want to say is um Jim is a listener of Let's Hear It. He is a listener. He refers to the podcast. He knows what episodes. That's By the right. way, it's episode three that that's Grant right. talks about. That's right. God stuff. bless his little socks, that Jim Canales. I love him so much. So and then I hear him say that. I'm like, okay, great. This is it. We're going to be doing this for the rest of our lives. Because if this podcast is just you and me and Jim's listening while he's walking to work. That works for me. It's all we need. That's, that's right. all we need. So uh, again, though, I actually think that the personable, approachable quality of that, this, that conversation, what's underneath it is that voices like Jim's are urgently needed in our country today totally and we got a chance to hear it here and and almost as if this is one of my every now and then i just get so angry so one of my angry moments is like (laughs) you seem like a very angry man i am i'm just very very angry angry. i'm just angry why don't we have an entire machinery built around just getting jim canales everywhere you know and and and, and jim's doing his part the the bar foundation is a vimeo channel jim is a writer you can see him in october from the stanford social innovation review i mean he's he's certainly projecting his values in some very thoughtful ways. But why don't we have an entire machinery that's got Jim and a host of other gyms, you know, because they're all over our field and we're hearing them on this podcast. I want them in our daily lives, you know. So but we at least we got to hear them on this podcast and that was just awesome. Here, here. Here, here. Uh thank you. Anything else you want to add to that? I mean there's a lot more we could talk about, but um that was really fun. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks everybody. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation for supporting this work and for a host of other important initiatives, particularly around communications and journalism. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.